Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with James Harding, a London-based journalist and the co-founder of Tortoise Media. James was previously a director of BBC News from 2013 to 2018. And before that, he was editor of the Times newspaper in the UK. James began his career at the Financial Times, where he opened the Shanghai Bureau and was later the Washington Bureau chief. Like us, James believes in context, big picture thinking, and slower, wiser news. Let's get him on the line. Hi, James. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Very good to be talking to you at a distance. (laughs) What's at the top of your mind right now? Right now at the top of my mind is the difficulty of trying to teach a dog to sit still. And actually come (laughs) to think of it, teach your kids to sit still and actually ourselves (laughs) journalistically to sit still. Maybe these things are all connected. Maybe they're all actually related. Nothing to do with the dog or the kids or the media business, but, but the... The pet owner, the parent, <laughs> the journalist. <laughs> it's a brilliant question, but that's what's off the top of my mind. Our dog, Scout, who is the loveliest, loveliest, scruffiest dog you could imagine, just runs away all the time. And so I've become one of those people that you see on social media, a middle-aged man who, who goes out shouting the name of their dog. And, and the thing is, our dog is named after Scout Finch. She's called Scout. And so in theory, this wonderful name that epitomizes so much that's wonderful in the world has been something that I now bark in public. (laughs) (laughs) Are you finding time to read or slow down? And and if so, what books are you turning to, looking at, thinking about? So I am one of those people who's finding lockdown, the kind of deep frustration that's deeper than the normal daily frustration in that you think that you've got the chance to read the entire works of Trollope, learn to make the perfect paella, finally become a cellist or one of those things. And, and I've done none of those things, none of those things at all. I found I've read much less than I hoped, particularly in kind of novels. That's normally when I'm off, I read novels mm-hmm. and and I haven't done any of that. I found myself reading either long form journalism or books or history books. And partly because I think that this thing for us you know, I left my old job in a big news organisation and started a new one. And weirdly, although our whole business is about slowing down, it's called Tortoise, actually this thing has accelerated it. You know, the coronavirus has accelerated things. So it's been a very, very busy time. And so a lot of that mm. reading has fed into how we think about it, what are the subjects that are underlying what's happening in the news. So unfortunately, I wish I could say to you, you know, I've discovered this great Colombian essayist, but I haven't. (laughs) By you reading journalism and sort of looking through things now and keeping this wide eye on things, what impact do you think the pandemic's having on journalism in general? Well, the boring answer is that it's obviously having a devastating impact on its economics, and that will feed through into what happens. The interesting one, I suppose, is that there's a level of accountability journalism that's much more visible to everyone. And that is not political, it's policy, and it's not personal, it's 
it's forensic. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it's incredibly powerful. And that's been gr- hugely good for the belief and purpose of journalism. There's a second element to it, which is more complicated, which is the extent to which journalism begins to examine the way we live in the way in which I think all of us sitting at home have examined the way we live. You know, do we want to commute to work? Do we think that the job we're doing is worth it? Are we relieved not to be seeing our boss? Whatever it is. And I think journalism is engaged in thinking through how you might change the way the world works. And so journalism, which by its nature can tell you what happened yesterday or in the sum of yesterdays, is being asked a little to examine what the world might do next, how we live next. That's a very different frontier for journalism. It's one that's often been left to academics or politicians, but it does seem like it's open now. And if you don't do it, you're not answering one of the questions of the public. So that, I think, is a bigger set of questions and challenges to journalism. But there's also just a really practical thing, which I think is, you know, how do you do the best bits of journalism which are reporting things out when you don't necessarily get the chance to meet people, talk to people, sense the lives they're living? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very different kind of storytelling that's happening right now. It's mediated for a mediated space. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when we were talking about meeting with you was the sort of responsibility of journalists now for the mental health of society is that increasing? It's always been important, but right now it seems that it's moment to moment news, the sort of fast journalism that you're working against actually, is taking a kind of um, move fast and break things approach to the way that we're reporting news. The child illness in the States that came out with absolutely no context mm. and everyone started to freak out in the last week. What are your thoughts about the ever-growing responsibility of the journalist for the mental health of society right now? That's such a deep question, which is is a way of saying I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know because it's something about that phrase in particular, the mental health of society. I definitely believe in the idea that journalism is the place that, if you like, sets some of the terms in the public square. It can help you understand who to trust and who not to trust. It can warn you of things. It can excite you about other things. It can share an optimism, a possibility of things that's in the public square. And in that sense, it can be responsible partly for the health, the spirit, the success of that public square. The thing that's so difficult right now is that What you're talking about is, I think, both really personally profound, the individual uncertainty, anxiety, fear, despair, frustration, anger, all of those those feelings, and then feelings that that are, are much more profound and much more dangerous, that are personal. And in addition to that, you're also thinking about, well, how much of that stuff has become endemic in society? How much of there's been a corrosion of the way in which public thinking, public conversation happens. I feel more comfortable, honestly, I'm thinking about journalism in the context of that public conversation. So, uh, and it's a failing on my part, is I don't know how I think through exactly the connection between those that individual mental health and and the press. That's That's not to say I don't see the enormous importance of responsibility of accuracy and context, as you say. But overall, I think about journalism as a public conversation, Mm -hmm. even though I realize that its consequences can be intensely personal. Mm. 
Well, it's wonderful what you say about, you know, what we don't know. Hmm. And a lot of people, I think more than ever, have been have been saying that. There's been this refrain of, you know, what don't we know? Yes. And that's something that seems to be emerging out of this that's healthy. Yeah. Well, it's healthy. We had it in the UK. Certainly we in the journalism business had it delivered to us in spades. And I became... I sort of clung to the phrase, I don't know, like a life raft, Um, (laughs) not just because we had, particularly in 2016, we had, if I remember correctly, not just an election in the US that went against the way that, you know, pollsters and pundits predicted. Um, By the way, there's the dog. You can hear she's back. Scout, there she's she's, (laughs) Maybe you should do a podcast with her. She's going to give you more succinct answers. Um, um, But we had, we not only had the, election in the UK we had the Brexit vote yep. but perhaps most of all we had Leicester winning the premiership now you don't need to know anything about sport to know that this was the least likely thing to happen in the history of British sport and no one had predicted it and so we became used to saying a we can't predict but b we don't know mm. It's new for us in the States. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I should say, I sound very kind of wise and worthy saying that. Of course, it hasn't stopped any of us from doing exactly that. Let me tell you, here's the way I think it's going to go. Well, Tortoise comes out of this burgeoning slow media movement, which so far is kind of more of a European phenomenon, certainly different from most of the media landscape here in the U.S., And it's also coming out of these other slow movements like slow food and this sort of mindset. Where do you think slow media is headed? And do you think it's catching on? Are you seeing, you know, I know Tortoise now has more than 30,000 members and a large percentage of your membership is quite young, under 30. Yeah. So then I really don't know. (laughs) Unfortunately, I wish I did. (laughs) I think it's it definitely is catching on. I think it's taking off in lots of places. And the reason is that it's answering a force of our times, the accelerating forces of technology and life. And people do want, given the volume of information that's coming to them and the way in which that information is presented, Mm. to be able to do what we at Tortoise try to do, which is slow down, wise up, to try to take pause and understand not the latest breaking news, but what's driving it. I think that there's something that is really valued by people. And look, all I can talk about is my personal experience. I came out of the BBC. The BBC, to my mind, is probably the greatest news organisation in the world. We were 8,000 people working Mm. for BBC News in near on 40 different languages. We were producing four seconds of news for every second of the day. And there was a sense that I had, which was the world is swirling around me. How do I try and understand what's driving it? And perhaps there were lessons in what had happened in the media in the last decade, the financial crisis, the rise of nationalist populism, the sort of creeping realisation of a climate crisis, and in some ways, actually, the technology revolution itself. All of these things had transformed our lives, and yet they hadn't ever quite led the bulletins. They hadn't quite Mm. dominated the front pages until the changes they'd wrought were already upon us. And so the things that I suppose we're trying to do is see some of those trends coming and identify and understand them. And it feels to me as though that's incredibly valuable because we're not supplanting the breaking news. It's not that if 
suddenly something happens, slow news is the answer to that. But hopefully it can give you some context. It can put some shape to it. Mm. And a core area of Tortoise from the start has been live events. Yes. You, you have these think-ins, or, or you call them forms for civilized disagreement, yes. and, uh, <laughs> and, and SenseMaker Live. And you've previously compared Tortoise to sort of a mix between Ted and The Economist. What do you see as the future of live events, and, and what impact has Zoom and I guess just the screen experience been having on live events? We thought that, you know, the joy of the live event is we're all in the same room together. And the format that we had was really specifically focused, really mimicking my life as a journalist before the BBC I worked at The Times. And we held a daily news meeting, an editorial conference that drafted the editorials of the day. And I loved it. I thought that this was the best sort of half hour of my day. You'd get all of these clever people in the room and we would argue out what we thought about any particular issue. And the thing that I loved about it and and still love about that process of journalism is it really finds you out. It finds out Mm. not what you think, but what you actually know. And so the idea of the thinking was... Well, imagine if you took that very simple format, let's try and, you know, examine a question. Should there be border controls at this current stage of the coronavirus? Well, I understand so little about how travel works. I understand so little about how quarantining works. I understand next to nothing about what the economic impact of that kind of disruption would be. The thinking idea was imagine if you got not just some expert voices that you've called up, that you opened the newsroom and waited to see who comes in. And what you find is people who really care about the subject and have some expertise and experience come in. And so what we've tried to do was use that to inform our journalism. And having started in our newsroom in London, what we discovered was that Zoom really was much more democratic. It's a much more open room. And I don't know how you're finding this, strangely enough, in the podcast, but, you know, we're doing this on Zoom, and it's much more uh, direct and intimate than I expected in that Mm. I'm totally focused on your face. All you can see is mine. Strangely, all those little cues still happen. You can see when I look awkward. I can see when you look a little (laughs) bored. (laughs) That's what happens here. And so the downsides of the live experience have been way, way outdone by the plus sides. And the reality is, you know, we were taking in, I suppose, seven, eight hundred, maybe a thousand people coming through our newsroom every week in central London. These mm. days, there are sort of eight to 10,000 people coming through our digital newsroom, wow. coming to Tortoise Thinkings and our other Tortoise events every week. So it's suddenly wow. taken off. And now we've got to work out how we do it really well. Mm. Another core part of Tortoise is the newsletter, yes. uh, the daily newsletter. Yeah. Newsletters have become such a thing again in media, I feel like, in, in the past couple of years. Why do you think that is? I think because, because of information overload and you want something that says, all right, let me just read one thing and it'll give me a grip on what I need. The difficulty is that, you know, most of us, certainly people of my age, have grown up, strangely enough, with a relatively stable media environment. A massive disruption comes to the format of storytelling about once every 30-odd years, right? So you'll do, okay, we'll, we'll do the printing presses. That's great. Then we're going to do newsprint. Then we'll bring along radio. Then we'll bring black and white TV. Then we'll do cable TV. And then in our lifetime, you know, for some 
reason they visited the internet on us. And the result of that is that the formats of, of journalism change really quite profoundly now in about every three to five years. And that's much more difficult to deal with. Right. So that, the reason I say that is, as you say, newsletters feel like they're back again. Right. Mm. I remember when I started as a reporter of the FT, we used to get newsletters and, you know, sort of go through them and with a highlighter pen. It's clearly different. It's not clear that that's necessarily the format that endures. So if you're starting a new newsroom, if you're starting a news organization and it's called Tortoise, and the thing that you like about Tortoise is they last, the really important thing is to have an ethos, I think, around the journalism and an approach to the journalism that can then live on different platforms and can be consumed mm. by people in different ways, I think, overwhelmingly on their mobile phones. But I'm not, I'm not in a position really to forecast, okay, what's the life expectancy of the email newsletter? We're going to find out. Right. And, you know, it's interesting to have started a company so recently called Tortoise, and mm. then this happened. I mean, for yeah. us, the slowdown, yeah. and then this happened. In terms of the structure of how you've done Tortoise, are a majority of them full-time or, or a lot of them sort of gig economy workers? So the majority of people are full-time. We had so much different advice on how to do this. Mm -hmm. Everything from just do it yourself on your own, nobody else, to there was one great US magazine editor who said, look, you need you know $50 million in a newsroom of 150 people, right? And the reality is that uh, we, we didn't do that. But, <laughs> but yeah, we've got mostly... Um, full-time people. And I think that, you know, it's consuming whichever way you do it. And you do also need to, I think, be able to deliver a product, something that people who are buying into it, something who are members who, you know, pay to be members of Tortoise feel like, okay, well, we get something of real value there. And that takes real commitment of people in time. So how have you yeah. done it? What have you, what's, what's the way Slowdown's done it? I mean, we're, we're, we're quite small. It's four of us. Great. And we've been producing, you know, slowly, um, but we're not a news organization. Mm. You know, we're, we're very different than Tortoise. We, we create a couple of podcasts and a newsletter and are working in kind of a different way, but we're working really, really hard because yeah. we're so sort of understaffed because, you know, we didn't take investment. We did similar. And what's the idea? What do you want to do in terms of two to five years from now? What do you think Slowdown will be? I think Slowdown is a a platform that has multiple touch points. So we want to continue to create podcasts like Time Sensitive or other podcasts is a very kind of organically slow process. But essentially what the strategy was, was a whole lot of people are thinking about this. A whole lot of people are talking about the weaponization of speed. Yeah. A whole lot of people are talking about what's happening to us, like you're seeing, obviously, yeah. why you started. And what we realized is no one was talking to each other. No one knew about each other. Yes. So we thought, what if we pulled up, you know, Kai-Fu Lee from technology and Bjarke Engels from architecture and Jesse Cam from fashion, and we profile them and mm -hmm. we actually do like a deep story on them and create a podcast that has a platform that's visual. So it's not just the, the audio, it's transcribed and edited for reading. It has imagery, it has hyperlinks out. And, you know, after almost a year, we have about a half million downloads and it just happened very organically. Amazing. And then at a distance started at the beginning of the quarantine. We thought we can't do time sensitive, which requires in-person interviews uh, in the studio in New York. And we just didn't feel like we could get to the same place. So we started at a distance. 
two months ago. And our thought, you know, which which actually leads to my next question with you is part of the reason we started at a distance was how do we make sure that the thinking that's happening right now is remembered later? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest fears is that we're all thinking in a certain way. And I already have felt it wane in the last six, eight weeks. I mean, the way we were thinking eight, yes. nine weeks ago, it's very different. And these big ideas about this moment, this fracture, this crack that's letting light in, how do we make sure we're looking at that a year from now? Yeah. So we were very much looking at this as how do we capture the thoughts and ideas of this time at a distance? And that was a lot of the thinking. So, so I would ask you, how important will storytelling be to actually making anything constructively positive come from this experience? <laughs> okay, well, the problem is I've now got too many interesting <laughs> thoughts that I'll rush at you and completely <laughs> undermine the, the spirit and the purpose of what you're trying to do. But f- first, can I just respond to the point about slowing down and the yeah. observation about slowing down? Because I suppose that really strikes a chord with me. The thing that really... St- changed in my working life has been my attitude to time, right? And this is not a sort of man who grows older thinks differently about time. I'm talking specifically about journalism. When I started out as a reporter, I remember a friend of mine who was uh, went on to become the editor of the Wall Street Journal used to quip. I was in China at the time, and he used to tell me, he used to say to me, you know, I'm not good, but I'm fast, right? And actually, it was a real quality, right? It wasn't, I mean, it was a sort of, it it was a kind of silly journalist brag one to the other. But the reality was, as a young FT reporter, if you could get out five stories a day, you were doing really a pretty good job, right? Particularly in the corporate reporting. And then when I covered politics, and I wasn't really much good at it, but the people who were really good at it were first. That was the thing that was them. They got, they were the first with the story every time, right? And it was only when I got to the Times and I was thinking about the stories that we had done well, by which I mean other reporters had done well, but the paper had looked good on, I realised that the thing that distinguished all of them was they all took longer than we'd expected. Mm-hmm. We'd committed a certain amount of time and each on each occasion it had taken three times what we'd planned. And then when I got to the BBC, I found myself thinking again, you know, the things that really stand out are the things that you've really taken time on. And Mm. then you start seeing it everywhere. And it's difficult in journalism because the reality is that there's not a journalism that works only slowly, right? But there is a complementary journalism that really works slowly. And I think in a host of ways, it's made me rethink time. And, you know, I was really struck. I, I read that great novel, The Overstory. The, mm. the, is it? Richard Powers. And it has an amazing thing in the first sort of 100, 150 pages of it, which is he basically dishes out half a dozen, maybe 10 novels in the first third of the book, right? He's just going through human stories, right? Like they're pancakes, you know, just going through a stack of pancakes. And I remember as I was reading this thinking, what is this guy doing? He's just giving away such good material. And then you come into the second third and the final third of the book and you realize, oh, that's the point, right? The trees, they are the overstory and we're just underneath it and we're, you know, we're moving very fast and these things don't endure. And when we set up Tortoise, 
And by the way, I am in a really circuitous we're, we're getting to the answer to your question. But when we set up yeah, t- no, Tortoise... Yeah, no, fascinating. When, when we set up Tortoise... I remember setting it up, and, and my my chairman is the former U.S. ambassador to the U.K. is an absolutely wonderful man called Matthew Barson, and we were wrestling what the name is, and I was like, let's call it Tortoise. And I went to go and ask a friend of mine, and she said, "So what are you doing?" And I gave her the spiel, and then she said, uh, "And what's it called?" I said, "It's called Tortoise." She said, "That is the stupidest name for a newsroom I've ever heard in my life." And I called Matthew in a panic, and he said, "No, no." no. No, no, if people are laughing, that's great. Let them enjoy. The point of Tortoise was not just kind of the Aesop point. You know, it wasn't just slow and steady wins the race, although I have to say I did like the fact it won the race. But also that the more you got into Tortoises, the more you realised how durable they were. Mm -hmm. And it really struck a chord again with me because as we sort of tipped into the 21st century, I found myself realising that the worldview that I'd grown up with had a very disposable quality to it. The 20th century was, if you like, successful for humankind, but at a huge cost in terms of what was disposable people, resources, cultures, and that a tortoise, who if you know anything about tortoise, has a great gift for durability, not just life expectancy, but actually has seen off, you know, huge changes in climate and the way the planet works. Tortoises endure. How do you create a society that is durable into the 21st century? And so that's really been a focus for us because I don't underestimate for a minute quite how brutal the recession we're in and going into is going to be. And I think Mm. we've got to be quite careful about airy plans for how we live next when actually for a lot of people it's like, you know what would be nice? Let's get back to work. I'd really love to have a job and have the security that all of that entails. But at the same time, you can't not do what you just said, which is reflect on the speed at which the hopefulness that characterised some of the thinking in the early part of this felt as though it's dissipated. And we do want to set down some lasting ways of thinking about how our society works, our government works, our business works, our planet works. And it does feel like there's a moment to do this and we don't want to waste it so that in a curious way, this crisis does have a lasting impact. And journalistically, as I said, and I suppose that touches on the point I was trying to make at the beginning, is that's what the journalism that's asked to think towards the future is being challenged to do. And it's not easy by any stretch, but it is exciting. Yeah, I mean, what you're doing at Tortoise is so important because it's a sidestep from moment to moment news. And, you know, we simply can't comprehend what's coming at us. No. And when you really think about the attention economy as a sort of platform for that, you know, we allowed the technologists of our time that are not part of the cultural sort of sociologists, anthropologists, philosophers, they were acting on their own and they created a system for us to basically be engaged at a level that we can't comprehend. Mm. And so it requires some very sort of counterintuitive thinking right now that business-wise might not make perfect sense in the in the current climate to kind of save the species because at the at the end of the day that's what's going to matter is what are the stories that are being told and are they getting to everyone or are they just getting to the elite and so my hope for tortoise is that it becomes a massive news organization it becomes the thing that you read on sunday yeah that you can kind of like 
chill out during the week and maybe not look at so much. The number of people that we've spoken to over the last two months that have said, yeah, I just don't watch the news anymore. That's not good either. No, I completely agree. And I think the, one of the things that I worry about for us, for like, and when I say us, people who are saying, okay, well, how do we pull off that sidestep? Yeah. Is how do you make it exciting, funny, intriguing? How do you make mm -hmm. sure you're not worthy and dull? And if you like wagging your finger at the world. Exactly. That's not what's going to work. And the thing that I've never managed, you know, because lots of people talk about the sort of slow journalism, slow news movement, and then mm. slow food. The one thing that the slow food guys have never got wrong is they never thought, you know what, this is really, really good for you. It's not that tasty, but it's really good for you. Right, the slow exactly. food people yeah. have got right the fact that it's delicious. Right. And that's the thing yeah. we've got to do, yeah. too. It's got to taste good. We, we describe what we do as kind of conscious entertainment. But Yes, but that's brilliant. And as I said, I was at the BBC before. The thing that was really interesting is you'd often hear people talk about, and there'd always be some kind of wonderful combo of words, you know, intelligent mainstream, as you say, conscious entertainment. And then the, the problem is, is that you kind of are magnetically pulled towards intelligent and you forget the mainstream. And before you know it, you're really boring or, you know, you're too like really conscious <laughs> and you forgot to be entertaining. And you're like, oh. <laughs> and we, by the way, we may very well be in the middle of this podcast, kind of exhibit A in that conversation. But that's really the hard thing because... Almost by nature, I think a slow newsroom is identifying really important trends. Right? Mm. We did an incredibly popular podcast on Prince Andrew. Not surprisingly, there are a lot of people who listen to it. But how do you make sure that you can do that too for the program to plant a trillion trees? Exactly. We talk a lot internally about this idea of culture, nature, and the future hmm. and where those intersect. Right. Because I think all things for us, that's sort of our filter. Where does all of it pass through? Where's that, that nexus point? Because that's what everyone cares about. Everyone cares about culture. Everyone cares about nature. Nature being you and I, yeah. not separate from the trees. Mm -hmm. And then the future. Yeah. And so you kind of need to have all of that in one. And then you can relate, I think. And we're, we're trying to work it out. We're figuring out. We're really trying to figure it out. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing either, you know? Well, that is genius. So a couple of things you should know about me. I'm not above ripping off other people's good ideas. So there'll be some <laughs> moments you're going to hear, hear me in some tortoise thinking saying, I was, I was talking to someone, I can't remember who it was, who was saying that culture, nature, and the future, <laughs> attributing, but very lightly, uh, a, brilliant, yeah. a brilliant idea. But the other thing that reminds me of is my... I, when I worked at the Times, we had this wonderful, brilliant colleague, Keith Blackmore, who had a rule, which was that if you ever came up with something that was just devastatingly good, you could take the rest of the day off. It's like, that was so mm -hmm. good, you can just take the rest of the day off. You can go home. So uh, anyway, I just wrote down culture, nature, and the future, and you both can go home. <laughs> of We're home. you're already at home, but that's the irony. <laughs> As we finish, I wanted to talk about context and truth. And I'm curious, this notion of context, which Tortoise really does do well, mm. you know, I get the newsletter in the mornings and I feel like I, I get a real worldly perspective mm. on what's happening right now. How do we find context in the noise of today's media landscape? Well, I think actually it's a huge opportunity for us. This is the one area where I, I feel quite revved up because I think there's something that's happening in the news media that's not a 
failure of editors or journalists. It's sort of the kinetic force of digital media, which means that the big news organizations can often feel like day traders, right? Everyone's in on the mm -hmm. same story. So there's quite a lot of landscape that's left for everyone else. And if you choose one element of it and say, today we're really going to go into vaccine development, or you mm. know what, there is a real debate now about obesity and personal choices, or there's a set of questions here, which is around, I don't know, the use of counterterrorism legislation and personal freedoms in the context of the coronavirus. You can pursue those things, and there's some room to do that. So I think that identifying and choosing those big issues, mm. those sort of lighthouse issues, is a way of providing context. I think the other thing is that there's a risk for slow news organizations, particularly ones that care about the things that, you know, culture, nature, and the future, things that we care about too, is that we always reach for global as the way of explaining it. I actually think the really interesting thing about this pandemic is it's local, is that the experiences in regions are very different and it's exposed that the differences within our countries are bigger than the differences between them. And so one of the ways that we can provide context is not from necessarily going big picture, but going smaller and really focusing. Mm. So that's something that we're going to try to do too. Mm. Yeah, and the, the small focus stories can also often reflect the big of picture. Of course, exactly. And Tortoise's motto, of course, which you referenced earlier, is slow down, wise up. Do you think slowness is a means toward the truth? And how do we deal with figuring out the truth in this sort of post-truth politics age? No one's going to get that all right. I don't know whether you're fast or whether you're slow. You're going to, everyone's going to make mistakes. And, you know, I'm a superstitious enough reporter too many years that we don't want to anger the gods of news. So anyone who claims <laughs> that they're going to be getting close to the truth is about to get massively humiliated. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, finish by swerving that particular question. <laughs> I guess, yeah, to finish, what is your greatest hope as we emerge from this pandemic? And what's your big hope for journalism? To finish on the same note that I started on. And my real hopes right now, if I'm totally honest, Spencer, one is that I would really like my fellow editors who are waiting on a separate call not to tear me limb for limb for being late again. I've tried to make a pledge of punctuality, which I break on an hourly basis. I would really love Scout to answer when I call her. Um, <laughs> it would be an amazing, amazing change in, in my life. And, and, you know, there's possibly weeks left of lockdown. That's what I'm going to focus on from here on in. Well, James, we'll let you get to your call, but uh, thanks again, and it's great to have you on today. Well, thank you very much, and all the best of luck. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.